Welcome to Stiefel's Investment Strategy Brief, a monthly recap of the macroeconomic and market environment. Well, greetings and welcome to the July 2022 Investment Strategy Brief podcast. This is Michael O'Keefe, Stiefel's Chief Investment Officer. Hey, you know, in, in this episode, this month, I want to talk about, uh, we're just passing mid-year in 2022, basically uh, the idea of keeping composure despite the fact that we've been facing lots and lots of challenges. So we'll get into it, but you know, 2022 has been a very tough year in the markets. And when that kind of thing happens and we see that heightened volatility, it's really tempting to just sort of hide from things, to hide from the issues and shy away from them. You know, we obviously think it's a better idea to take a, a, a methodical and sort of careful look at what's going on and, and really realistically what what might happen as we look forward. And so we want to take a kind of a careful look at what has happened in the first half of 2022, how we got here, what happened and why, and then try to be realistic looking forward. I think, though, what we're going to get to at the end of the day is this is actually a reasonably good time to be investing uh, and certainly a good time to, to remain invested if one is invested. Um, that's sort of the punchline uh, of uh, this month's uh, discussion. So let's jump into it. You know, when we started 2022, recall it our outlook and our first few uh, podcast episodes for this series, we talked a lot about balancing acts. We've been talking about them uh, through the uh, the balance of the year. Uh, and things that we were w- watching back then were sort of how governments were managing the pandemic uh, the Fed needing to balance its policy to try to bring inflation down, companies working hard to protect profit margins, you know, the, the shifts going on uh, globally with politics and geopolitics, really the idea of protectionism, co- uh, countries bringing things a bit more onshore, not depending on other countries for supply chain, etc. And then, uh, importantly, how the uh, power in D.C., that balance of power was unfolding because, you know, to the degree the Democrats with, uh, you know, a very slight majority could get coordinated. They had, in theory, the, the votes and the, and the power to get some things done. And so those are the things that we were sort of talking about and, uh, and watching as we started the year. And all of that is going on. But I'd say that there are a few imbalances that have uh, sort of popped up and developed um, that are leading to elevated inflation, which is really the uh, primary driver of what's going on. Um, The first I'd say is related to the pandemic. I don't think people anticipated the magnitude, for example, of Omicron. So Omicron, which was quick and fast, really slowed everything down in terms of the reopening. And it re reinforced uh, supply chain uh, pressures. So the idea that certain things we need to get uh, are hard to get, uh, semiconductors being a really, really good example of that. And then that, that's that been amplified by another imbalance, which is really China uh, deciding to try to take a zero COVID uh, policy, meaning they're locking down where they feel they need to to keep the virus from appearing and spreading when obviously the Omicron and other variants are increasingly very, very contagious. So that's really hard to do. And it's meant, you know, episodic uh, and sometimes sustained sort of shutdowns of China factories and other businesses that are important to the world supply chain. So that, that sort of, uh, again, sort of reinforced the pressure on supply chains around the world. So think of it as less supply 
And that's one uh, force that we've talked about that can drive prices higher. But then the second force on the other side of that equation, well, actually, let me mention one other supply thing. Of course, the Russia-Ukraine war, that tragic war, uh, has done the same thing for oil. So more uh, puts a little bit more limits on oil availability, given that people have sort of cut Russia off in that regard. And then food, the region, including Ukraine, basically an important input to the the sort of global food supply. And so those are two other supply side uh, pressures uh, that weren't expected in 2022. In any event, that supply side is uh, is kind of pushing prices higher. We all see it. We all experience it. And then when you think about what we've done to support the reopening of the pandemic, both here in the U.S. and globally, uh, it's been really to flood the system with lots of support, both fiscal and monetary. That's created excess demand. We've talked about it and seen it, these high levels of GDP growth. That means there's a lot of people out spending a lot of money, and that means demand is higher, and that's another force that brings inflation higher. So we've got both sides of the equation driving inflation higher, and that has led to an understanding that central banks, including our Fed, are going to have to act to try to calm things down. Um, it has driven interest rates up, we'll, we'll talk about that, and driven stocks down. So this has been, as I mentioned, a very tough year. When we look at the kind of the U.S. bond and stock market, as we've talked about before, they are typically good diversifiers, meaning in every year when we go back to, I think it's 1982, if one of those markets was negative, the other was positive. And that's the whole idea of diversified investing, right? In 2022, for the first time since then, uh, essentially both markets are negative. So it's an unusual experience and something, of course, that everybody's watching. But honestly, when we go out and diversify out beyond U.S. and non-U.S. stocks, basically uh, almost all asset classes, as people will talk about asset classes, have posted negative returns this year um, and some sizable, right? And um, and I would say that... Um, you know, the, the safety spot has been cash, basically short-term uh, uh, sort of yield-oriented uh, fixed-income investments, so bond, short short cash and very, very short bonds. And um, and so, again, th- this is something, if you were to look at the cycles over time where this happens once in a while, uh, but then everything tends to recover. So, you know, we have to be mindful that the markets do uh, uh, run in cycles, and when we have negative returns like this, they're, they're typically going to recover. Now, one thing that um, I would say is that it's been interesting, and we've talked about it, the, um, uh, the Fed does uh, uh, produce what they call um, uh, the Summary of Economic Projections, the SEP. And that's actually told the story, uh, both in terms of what has happened with inflation, then what, how the Fed has reacted to that, and w- what the impact of all that is, on economic growth. So if we go back to December before uh, people realized certainly that we were going to have a war in Ukraine or uh, some of these sort of, the Omicron was going to hit as hard and all these sustained sort of uh, supply chain issues. Essentially, the the Fed forecast uh, inflation calming down this year to 2.6%. And that meant that they could keep their Fed funds rate down for the year around 1%. Um, and, you know, hike it a little bit, but not a lot. And that GDP was going to grow above trend still at 4%. And 
then as we got to March, basically the uh, there was a recognition that inflation was sustained. They increased their inflation forecast for the year to 4.3% and realized, gee, we're going to have to hike rates a bit more. So up to almost 2% was their sort of expect, expected Fed funds rate uh, through the balance of the year. And that all of that would sort of roll up to a slightly lower uh, economic growth of just under 3%. I think the forecast was 2.8%. But then we, we got to June, and basically uh, they, they said, oh gosh, we've really gotten it wrong on inflation. Now we think inflation will be, uh, for the balance of the year, uh, year of 2022, 5.2%. And, uh, and that that means we really have to get aggressive with, with hiking rates. They've sort of forecast to get to 3.4%. Uh, which is a big jump, and that means that economic, the economy is going to really slow down, and their forecast for 2022 is 1.7%. So, you know, think of it as this uh, recognition that inflation wasn't going away, the idea that they'd have to hike policy rates to rein it in, um, and that's really the demand side of the equation, hope that the supply side issues uh, work themselves out, and all of that would lead to a slower economy, but what you'll hear is the idea of a soft or softish landing, meaning no recession, triggered by this activity. So again, we'll see. Now, as it relates to the way the industry reacts to this kind of thing, you know, we track um, certainly our colleague, Dr. Lindsay Piegza, in terms of her outlook on the economy and, and sort of come to some of our own views, but we also track a lot of different firms around the industry, a lot of research firms, et cetera, and the Fed's policy, as we just discussed, um, there's also sort of a, a way to roll it up into consensus. But the punchline is that everyone's been bringing down their uh, 2022 growth rates uh, quite significantly, meaning that they, they we, we all think GDP is going to slow uh, quite significantly. Most people still have it in the positive territory. Everybody talks about the probability of recession going higher. And right now, for example, for the second quarter, remember we had a contraction in the first quarter. For the second quarter, there's a model called the Atlanta Fed GDP Now, which estimates, um, in this case, second quarter growth. And it's it's all mechanical. It's a quantitative model. But as, it's, as it stands, it's expecting uh, a decline of 1.5%. Now, again, I think uh, most people are not expecting that. Uh, that most people still see a... Um, a modestly positive second quarter, but we'll see uh, again how that unfolds. Now, why do people think it'll be a positive uh, quarter? Well, when we look at data, and then we do a look a lot of a lot of data, there's a lot of positive signals out there, and it, and really think of it as the economy's still going well and things kind of healing from the damages of the closing. For the pandemic. And so, for example, there's a data set called Purchasing Managers Indices. And the spirit of these is you were, you know, there's surveys that go out and ask businesses, are you contracting or expanding? And 50 means it's about neutral. Uh, below 50 means things are contracting. And above 50, they're expanding. And when we look out around the world to different regions, different co major countries, different emerging markets, the vast, vast, vast majority are in the expansionary state, um, all above 50. Uh, notably, one that's not is China. So China's dealing with some challenges related uh, in, in good part to their uh, COVID policy. And so China, in terms of that survey, is in a contractionary state. 
Now, as it relates to healing, another another thing that's been going on is there's been um, uh, a very, very, very strong uh, job market. It does, think about it, people have jobs, they feel good, uh, that means demand is up. So it's another factor that's sort of driving the demand side of the equation. And, you know, that healing can be uh, sort of observed when we look at the recovery of jobs that were lost from the shutdowns. And even though places like leisure and hospitality, uh, that could include, for example, hotels, haven't quite recovered all of the eight plus million jobs that were lost in that segment, and I think we've all experienced that, right? Go to a hotel and the service isn't quite back to where it was. A lot of other areas, um, so business services, trade transportation, utilities, um, manufacturing, construction, um, information services. Basically, we have, um, you know, certain segments of the economy, but where not only have they recovered all the jobs that were lost, but in fact, they've hired more. So they've recovered over 100%, if you will, of the jobs that were lost as a result of the shutdown. And again, that what that means is, hey, we have a, a, a strong consumer. So when we look at things like retail sales or even the first quarter, the con- consumption contribution to GDP, even though the overall GDP was negative, the consumer's part of it was positive. And then, as I've mentioned, you know, we've got a, a very, very strong employment environment, uh, unemployment at 3.6%. The, the consumer is very engaged. And so, you know, what I would say is that the, uh, the whole idea here is that the consumer remains positive. Things are going to roll back a little bit, both for higher inflation and Fed policy and higher interest rates. And it's going to take a little time for that to happen. But the consumer remains, as, as we all have for quite a number of months now, very engaged. Now, another thing that we track, you know, people are looking at how inflation is reported, and that's, of course, reported on a lagged basis. So, um, you know, we've seen uh, sort of May uh, much more uh, challenging than we thought. We saw June much more challenging than we thought. But it's important to look at sort of real-time data uh, that sort of feeds into these inflation prints that tend to be a little bit lagged and see what's going on. And so there's a couple of factors that I, I want to mention. One is oil. Oil has been really volatile. It's gotten up to um, you know over $120 a barrel uh, for crude. Um, but importantly, it's basically rolled over and it's down, uh, I don't know, trading probably in the 90s right now. It moves around a bit. So there are all these forces, right, in terms of maybe demand is slowing down a little bit or maybe we'll see a little bit more supply or the release of reserves by the U.S., things that are going to hopefully drive oil prices lower. That's important in terms of inflation for two reasons, and maybe more than two reasons, but two primary reasons. One is just, um, you know, the the cost of things like gasoline are going to come back down, right? And they've gotten really elevated uh, compared to what we're used to. And... uh, and then importantly, energy in general, um, so gasoline, other, other uh, sort of uh, ways that we consume energy are really a big important part of our cost structure for, for businesses. And so if those costs ease a little bit, maybe there'll be less pressure to raise prices. And again, that could lead to uh, you know, inflation starting to calm down. And, and another uh, factor anyway, there, there are probably other categories like that, that we could find that, that would sort of speak to the idea of um, uh, inflation, seeing signs of inflation easing in terms of prices. But I mentioned that supply chain pressure. And, uh, 
And basically, there's different indices that track how severe it is. Um, and even though it remains above normal by by far, for sure, you know, the bottom line is it's really eased um, from earlier in the year when it was more elevated. So we're seeing these signs that supply chains are starting to open back up. And honestly, when we look at things like the um, the break-even inflation rate, uh, when we look at... Um, uh, what the market is pricing in for inflation, one year inflation a year from now, two years from now, three, four, five, six, seven. Basically, it takes about seven years by those metrics to get back to the Fed's 2% target. But a year from now, you know, the market's expecting kind of, uh, you know, low, lowish, just above 2%. And kind of think of it as it, uh, bouncing around, I don't know, the, probably the 22 uh, to 2.3% range and falling uh, down to 2% seven years from now. So the market's anticipating uh, lower inflation. That's important. Now, that uh, then does uh, signal like if things start to calm down, I think one of the things that we're all watching is Fed policy. The Fed comes out very strongly and talks about its willingness to continue to hike rates aggressively uh, until they see signs of inflation calming. And, and essentially what the market and the Fed are signaling now is that they're going to do that for a while, but uh, then they're going to ultimately lower the rate back down. Think of it as injecting a little bit of support back into the economy after the inflation problem is clearly behind us. And what's interesting about that, you know, it's basically forecasts of that future funds rate. You know, the Fed has a certain, you know, forecast and then they expect it to roll over the market which basically prices in what they think is going to happen as it relates to go this is investors essentially making investments based upon views about that future funds rate the market is anticipating that that easing will happen sooner than what the fed's currently forecasting so i think the the important thing to understand is that um at least in our view, if the if inflation starts to sign, if we start to see signals that inflation is calming, it's cooling down, and we see important movements in prices of components and ultimately headline prints for inflation start to uh, to really go lower. There's a point at which the Fed uh, has the room in a, in effect to kind of back off of their aggressive messaging and their aggressive policy, and so what everybody's focused on is well. Not only, not really, if that's going to happen, but really when. And and you know, again, we have the view that there's some chance if we see uh, inflation uh, start to really calm a little bit, that we um, we could see the Fed really backing off a little bit more than is currently anticipated on their on their rate hikes and eventually easing a little bit, bringing rates back down. Now everybody's talking about whether we're going to see a recession. Um, and that's really hard to tell um, in the sense that we're seeing lots of data, as I said, like that Atlanta Fed GDP now metric is signaling, quote unquote, negative growth for the second quarter. And, you know, whether or not that, that, that combination of first and second quarter, which would be a technical recession, will be sort of defined as one more formally is yet to be seen. But the bottom line is when we look at the data, we look, we have a dashboard, we track 13 measures. Um, you know, basically we have six that are in the cautionary state, but not yet the recession state. Uh, and the remaining seven are still quote unquote in the green. So our view is, of course, we will eventually have a recession, but we think it's a year to 18 months out, but we acknowledge that the probability, um, that it could happen sooner is certainly higher than it was six or 12 months ago. 
Now, when we look at investing, let's switch gears and, and think about what's happened and, and what all this means for investing and start with the, uh, the bond side of the equation. When we look at different investments, um, it, with, with interest rates higher, unfortunately, of course, bond prices go down and, uh, and that's painful. You know, you get your statement, it's, it's hard to see. But the bottom line is, from here, what that means is that yields on new investments especially, but even the current investments basically from here are higher because interest rates have gone up. And so what that means is relative to where we've been, where interest rates and yields have been pretty tight, pretty low, we're basically in an environment where whether we're looking at investing in municipal bonds or corporate bonds, you know, in the form of corporates or even treasuries, by historical standards, especially recently, the yields on these investments, remember yield is basically sort of a forward estimate of return. You you own the bond until maturity, um, or if it's a callable, you know, and it's the yield to quote unquote worst, uh, or yield to call, um, you know, basically that's the return that you get by owning the bond. And so all of a sudden those numbers are a bit more positive than they've been, and that means investing in bonds from here uh, should be uh, positive. Now, of course, rates could go higher. That could drive prices lower. But ultimately, you hold the bond to that maturity date, and that's the return that you get if everything goes okay in terms of uh, the bond you know, paying off its, its, um, its principal. Uh, in any event, that, that I think is an important concept that, boy, especially from here, investing in bonds is a bit more appealing. We're seeing activity, certainly from clients and, and our own decision-making, where we're saying, okay, it's time to, if you will, put a little bit more money work to work uh, when it comes to where we might have allocated capital for, for fixed income or bonds. Now, on the equity side, there are a couple forces that I would, I would mention, uh, or three things I would want to talk about. The first is valuation. So finally, when we look at valuation, even by historical metrics, essentially what we're seeing is that because of the decline, the bear market that we, we got into, the valuation on stocks has become a lot more appealing. And so that just by that pure standard of valuation, things uh, look good. But the second thing I would say is that um, when it comes to how the uh, investors and equity investors are interpreting all of that's going on, we think there's the potential for uh, relief, meaning the idea that if we see inflation calm down, uh, people aren't anticipating that as much as uh, they might, and especially if it's if it ends up resulting in the Fed saying, hey, we don't have to go quite as high as we originally thought on, on bringing rates up. There's a lot setting up for what you might think of as, a, as near term, a relief rally in equities. Now, we're not big market timers, but especially for those that are either invested or those that are thinking about putting money to work, we think it's a good time on both fronts uh, to be invested in equities. And finally, that's sort of um, supported by the idea that despite all that's going on, we're seeing uh, earnings on companies uh, remain in the growing state, right? That we expect uh, in aggregate the earnings on the market, let's say the S&P 500, to continue to grow. You know, the forecasts are in the 9 to 12% range, you know, roughly, or 9 to 11% range for the next three calendar years. This year is 2023 and 2024. And, um, and you know, essentially our long-term expectation is 6%. So these are numbers that are reasonably above um, our long-term view. 
But even so, you know, maybe we'll see that consensus has a, a little too optimistic and things fall down to more in the mid single digit range, five to 6%. That's in the neighborhood of our long-term expectations. So we just think that that is supportive of stocks uh, from here, especially if we see things uh, kind of calming down in terms of inflation. If inflation cools and the Fed can back off on policy just a little bit, that should be really supportive of stocks. So, hey, that, that's really what we wanted to cover in terms of our, our special topic this month. I want to uh, uh, pause from here and, and or go to uh, two sort of standard topics, the macro environment and the market environment. Okay, when we get to uh, the macro environment, I want to uh, talk first about the pandemic. So, you know, this is, it's been interesting because there's so many other things that have our attention and frankly also the, the idea that the mortality on the, on the latest, uh, 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 like Omicron and other variants, thankfully, is not quite as severe. Um, essentially, what we're seeing is the, the uh, a slight jump in cases. So we're seeing more cases uh, than the lows back, let's say, in March, uh, but still um, not go, going anywhere near what we are seeing with Omicron. And again, basically, we're seeing uh, less impact in terms of hospitalization and mortality. Uh, but long story short, we still have to keep an eye on, on things as it relates to the pandemic. But I think that the, sort of the political will of governments is to be open um, and sort of work hard to try to make uh, people uh, comfortable and, and, and have people be engaged so that, you know, the economy can continue to heal. So the pandemic, you know, important update, but we're, we're not seeing severe trouble. Uh, as we talked a bit about GDP, I'll just reinforce, we had a, a negative print in the first quarter. So all eyes are on second quarter, but we think regardless, um, essentially we're in a state of uh, trend or slightly below trend growth now. I mentioned the, the PMI type data. When we look at other kinds of data, mentioned unemployment, other job, housing, uh, sort of the creation of business inventories, and as I've mentioned before, retail sales, there are a lot of different data points signaling expansion in the economy. Now, one thing that people look at as it relates to um, uh, whether we're going to see an inflation, or I'm sorry, a recession is... Uh, is uh, uh, the basically the shape of the curve. You'll hear the curve flattening or inverting. And historically, that's been the two and the 10-year treasury rate. So think of it as, hey, if we look at the 10-year um, rate and, uh, and essentially um, that falls below the two-year rate or becomes inverted because normally it's positively sloped, people say, hey, after that, at some point we have a recession. And that's in, in a way technically always true but um, sometimes we don't, and sometimes it takes, um, or at least it takes a while, it could be a year or two before the, the recession actually happens. And, you know, so the bottom line is it, it's not clear that it's a signal or sort of cause and effect. Another metric that people look at is called the near-term forward spread. This is a favorite of our, our economist, Dr. Lindsay Piegza. And basically here what we're looking at is you, you look out, 18 months at what's called the forward rate of the three-year. And then you subtract the current rate. And basically, um, when that turns negative, so the idea is the market thinks short-term rates are going to be falling within the next year and a half, that is a slightly stronger signal that a recession is is 
uh, possibly going to happen pretty soon here. And so just to kind of lay it out, that um, that's sort of near-term forward spread is still very positive. So we're not really seeing any, any anything like that. Now, I've mentioned the idea that uh, the consumer has been very engaged, um, but, but with that confidence, just in terms of mindset of consumers, actually quite negative. And you know, there's a lot of forces to that. People are worried about inflation. They're frustrated with inflation. There's a lot of talk about sort of people being disappointed in the sort of political environment in the U.S. and maybe just overall sort of stresses. But, you know, it, despite that, basically people remain pretty engaged. All that leads to the idea that, as I've said before, we, we really don't think we're uh, headed immediately into a recession here. We're definitely late cycle. And uh, and so that's important, right? We know it's going to happen, uh, but we still believe uh, that we're, even though the chances are a little higher, that we're probably a year to 18 months out at the earliest for that. Now, turning to markets, you know, to kind of close out on this and one other uh, quick topic, basically we've seen um, lots of different drivers of volatility, uh, stuff going on in D.C., the midterms coming up, which is always a more volatile year or typically a more t- volatile year. We've seen Fed policy getting more aggressive than first anticipated, sustained higher inflation, the war in Ukraine, China lockdowns, all kinds of things leading to lots and lots of volatility and a rollover in the equity market uh, and the bond market. So as we've discussed, some some negative mar- markets. Now, one thing we've uh, looked at is a quick historical study on Fed rate hike cycles going back to the 70s. And essentially, two things we see. One is that it still takes a while, um, average of actually over three years, three and a half years before a recession hits from the start of the cycle. And then uh, during the cycle, basically stocks usually post a positive return. And so a couple sort of quick data points to just reinforce the idea that we should uh, have a good chance of a recession not happening for a while and equity markets going higher. And that's off the back of really what's been, you know, some some weakness here in 2022. So we look at the S&P 500, it's dipped down into bear market territory. Uh, interestingly, value stocks have performed a little better, still down, but take the Russell 1000 value down about 14% year to date versus growth, which includes big tech stocks, down uh, almost 27%. Now, we've seen non-U.S. markets also post negative returns in U.S. dollars, down 22% and 20%, but also note that the dollar has been very strong. So part of that negative experience for the U.S.-based investor has been a strong dollar. So if you're investing in other currencies to get that exposure to non-U.S. securities, you, you know, part of that negative return is basically not doing as well as if, as if you kept your, uh, currency, if you will, in the dollar. And then as mentioned, bonds are down. What's the sort of flagship uh, taxable bond index, the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate bond index, was down about 10% uh, year to date so far in 2022. I mentioned that uh, the consumer is a little bit uh, sort of stressed out right now. Another uh, way to look at things is whether people are bullish or bearish. And right now there are a lot of people that still are very bearish. Um, um, and, um, and there's sort of an adage that, uh, people talk about, which is, it's a good time to buy when other people are fearful and maybe consider selling when people are greedy. We're in a, a fearful environment right now. So again, that, that we actually think by historic patterns that this is supportive of a, a positive market going forward. 
And, you know, and, and we're reminded that this happens, right? These cycles of bull and bear markets have been a, a good amount of time uh, since we had um, a sustained um, uh, bear market. You know, we had the, sh the quick one for um, uh, the, the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but up to that then, for example, it was, it was a pretty long time. And so long story short, you know, it shouldn't be that surprising that we see this kind of movement in the equity market. But when we look back at the pattern, of course, we end up rolling back into a bull market. And, and over the long term, we expect equities to have a positive return. As our dynamic leanings go, we haven't really changed anything this month. We watch it and analyze it kind of week to week. But the bottom line is we're overweight in the U.S. value uh, stocks in the large cap space, which we've talked about. And that's been a, you know, a quote unquote good bet on a dynamic leaning basis. We're overweight small cap for active managers. That has been a little bit of a drag. Uh, and then we're in the U.S. space overweight non-U.S., which again, um, with that strength of the dollar has been a slight, slight drag. When you add all that up, the, the effect has been positive. Uh, in any event, on the on the uh, fixed income side, we've been uh, modestly overweight high yield for those that invest in high yield and do so with active management. And it's a little bit of a toss up to know how that's done in the sense that, um, yeah, the, that market has performed a little bit uh, less well or not as, you know, a little bit more negative than the investment grade market. But it's been a very positive environment for active management in that space. So more to come on that, I think, in the future. So listen, in the show notes of this podcast uh, episode, you'll see uh, a set of slides that go with this discussion if you ever want to pull it up. And also on page 38 of that deck is a link to uh, all of our work. So as I always like to do at the end here, I'd like to invite everybody to uh, check that out, page 38 of the slides, and uh, hit, hit links if you want and check out our other work. Thanks so much for listening um, to this episode, and we'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening to Stiefel's Investment Strategy Brief. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to automatically receive each month's podcast in your feed.